Hello. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. My name is David Osman, and with me today is Brian Pellegrini of Intertemporal Economics. Our subject for this podcast is US Politics and Economics in 2021. The Establishment Strikes Back. The Independent Research Forum promotes an extensive range of the best independent research providers from around the world, both micro and macro, some stock pickers, some sector specific, some country specific, many global, all investment related. Given the current situation in the United States of America, I'm very pleased that we are joined today by Brian Pellegrini, who is the founder of Intertemporal Economics and the firm's senior analyst. Brian founded Intertemporal Economics in 2018 after spending seven years at Connolly Insight, working with the well-renowned economist Bernard Connolly. As a senior analyst at Connolly Insight, Brian specialised in monetary policy, energy, geopolitical event risk and labour markets. Prior to being at Connolly Insight, Brian gained experience in various positions across Wall Street, including working with high-growth technology firms raising capital, structuring options trades and valuing asset-backed securities. Brian holds an MBA from Columbia University, a Master of Science in Finance from Northeastern University and a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from Columbia University. He is also a CFA charter holder. Intertemporal Economics uses an in-depth investigative approach to analyzing economic processes and financial markets. The firm's analytical framework is based on microeconomic foundations, which allows an understanding of endogenous factors and patterns of human behavior that cannot be analyzed using quantitative techniques alone. The firm's research focuses on topics affecting economics, interest rates, and asset prices in developed markets. Brian, welcome. Let's begin with a brief introduction to intertemporal economics and the services that you provide to your clients. Oh, thanks, David. Um, Thank you for the introduction and um, thank you to you and your uh, listeners for taking the time today. So as you um, referred to, I'm gonna, I wanna highlight two pillars of my research that differentiate me from my competitors and uh, especially from the establishment Wall Street analysts. The first pillar is an absolute commitment to first principles. So I don't start with the data and solve backwards to deduce what's going on. Uh, that's standard practice in economics and it has its place, but it has its vulnerabilities as well. And Part of the issue is nomenclature. The, the, the term macroeconomics is sort of a colloquialism. All economics is microeconomics. The macroeconomy is the sum of trillions of microtransactions that are taking place every single second. All human action is a, a transaction base. So instead of solving backwards, I actually solve forwards. I look at the circumstances uh, that led us to where we are, and I think about the first principles about what should be happening right now. So if my historical analysis leads me to an assessment that's different from the current conditions, it means that either A, I'm missing something, or B, the data is being misinterpreted. And 
talk about the data issue shortly. The second uh, focus is, is capital-based economics. And this um, is different from the labor and demand-focused economics that's practiced by Wall Street and, and the Fed and is sort of ubiquitous. They focus on demand as a function of the economy because of their, of their heavy use of statistics. They need things which can be easily counted uh, in, a, in a very fast time frame, right? So it has to be quantifiable. When you focus on, but, but the economy is what makes it work is a heterogeneous capital goods structure. So you have capital is not just one pool of amorphous value, which is how statistical models treat it. It's a specific set of different capital goods arranged in a very specific way. And you have to consider that when considering where the bottlenecks will be um, and where there's value for investors. So real capital goods don't lead themselves to statistical analysis. And the number one reason when it gets down to it is because the value is subjective to each entrepreneur, right? And that's why first principles are so important. So you do need data, of course. Um, so I put a lot of effort into avoiding data traps. And the number one step in that is don't pay too much attention to headline economic data, even though Wall Street obsesses over it. Highly aggregated data can fall victim to netting out information. Many times the disaggregated data has information in, uh, that gets washed away when you add everything up. Um, and then there are just calculation errors that can occur where, uh, you know, the, the estimates for the birth and death rate of small businesses is wrong for a while. And so you get drastically different aggregate data from the truth. So I focus on economic data that are actual counts or that can be easily estimated and occur in systematically important parts of the economy. So right now, uh, in general, but especially right now, the freight transportation system is where a lot of my focus is. The government data collectors, they know exactly how many planes took off and landed. They know exactly how many boats docked, and they know pretty good what was on them. Trucks, a little bit less exact detail um, on the counting, but still at the private level, there's a lot of consulting firms and, and you know, Department of Transportation. They do provide a lot of really timely data. And that provides you with the second derivative of growth. When are things, when is the rate of growth changing? When is something going on? Brian, there's a lot happening in the States at the moment, which isn't being captured by the data. And I just wonder, Joe Biden will become the 46th US president on the 20th of January. What do you expect the Biden presidency to do next year? The number one focus uh, is going to be maintaining an image of having control over the situation until there's enough distribution of vaccines and the economy has started to normalize to something that looked like pre-COVID. And the first step in that is getting a stimulus package through Congress. And a second step is going to be very diplomatic, working with the governors of the states. The president, for readers who aren't American, the president has very, and the Congress have very little power to tell the states what to do. Mainly what they can do is ask and bribe. And so then the game becomes, here's some money, and then later on, maybe we'll take it away if you don't do what we say. Uh, but they can't just tell. So if you work on the assumption that the Republicans barely keep the Senate, Biden's going to need to provide the political cover that Nancy Pelosi, the, the uh, House Majority Leader, and if the Republicans win, Mitch McConnell, the um, Senate Majority Leader, uh, they're going to need 
political cover to make compromises. And so they can sit and act as partisans. And Biden says, I got to talk to everybody and I came up with a bipartisan solution so that it looks like House and the Senate begrudgingly gave something up and Biden is the ultimate peacemaker. So, you know, for the Democrats, the the priorities are going to be cash transfers to the public, raising taxes, bailing out the states and cities. They need that bad. And some sort of student loan forgiveness or uh, refinancing. The Republicans are going to want to protect the tax cuts and they're going to want to limit the size of the bailouts that go to the states. So, you know, one area where they can all work together is some sort of offshoring penalty. For, for companies so that Republicans can say we stopped jobs from going to China and Democrats can say the same thing and say also, by the way, there's some taxes involved in it. So I was going to say, Brian, if the Democrats do happen to win the two Senate seats in the Georgia runoff on the 5th of January, what difference will it make to the Democrats' policy agenda? See, that's a great question because then that changes the game quite a bit. Uh, and I think it makes Biden's job a lot harder to be honest. He, Nancy, and, and uh, Mitch have known each other for almost 50 years. Um, they're all colleagues. They can work together well and get the job done so that they all get to keep their jobs. If the Democrats hold the Senate, then the more radical aspects of the House are going to want uh, included in their packages legislation that targets Trump administration or increases taxes. They're going to start including things that are maybe uncomfortable in the Senate, but that a Democrat majority in the Senate could push through. So in that case, you have a lot more contention. You're going to have a fight over the filibuster. So I think for everybody, uh, especially Joe Biden, it will be better for the Republicans to, to hold the Senate. And if that happens, what does that mean for the U.S. economic outlook in 2021? If there's a, a very fast stimulus that beats out the very effective vaccine, then you could have a really big economic boom in 2021 because people will have their cash in their pockets and they'll be able to go out and spend it. The major question will be how fast do restrictions roll on activity roll off? So right now the U.S. economy, the global economy, but the U.S. economy is where my focus is and it has a, a strange situation where Overall demand hasn't changed that much, but the composition of demand has changed drastically, where demand for goods is up by three or four hundred billion per annum, uh, and demand for services is down by three or four hundred billion per annum. So all of a sudden, the freight distribution system has had to provide a greater flow of goods. And the problem is, is that in the second quarter, the whole system was shut down. So inventory drawdown was massive. And that was really where that huge pain came in that negative 33% GDP read. So if you have a, a fast snapback, you could have shortages of goods that people want and large increases in freight prices. You know, that's a in some ways a good problem to have, but nobody really knows what how inflation expectations will react to shortages. We know that super low unemployment and pretty good wage growth wasn't enough to change people's inflation expectations. Americans pay attention to oil, gasoline prices, which follow oil prices very closely, and that definitely had an effect in reducing inflation expectations. 
um, but the unemployment didn't change things. But it will be interesting to see if people show up with their government stimulus in hand at the store and they cannot at any price get what they want. The place they'll go to is eBay and the price that they'll see is three or four times what they were going to pay in the store. That could change inflation expectations and that would have that would create some problems for the Fed. So so you could have good news and then some bad news towards the end of the year. So is it fair to say that with the rollout of the vaccines, the US economy is likely to have a tailwind in 2021? And if so, what are your main asset allocation recommendations and preferred investments? That's a great question. I think the two main considerations that investors and speculators need to keep in mind is that uh, real rates are not going to go up, but taxes might, right? So that means that real assets with that generate unrealized capital gains rather than income should outperform. The obvious answer that jumps out is gold, but another way to play it would be foreign gold companies listed in the U.S. but that don't pay any taxes in the U.S. Yeah, from the equity side, an allocation to parts of the freight system that aren't directly exposed to fuel prices and definitely aren't exposed to driver wages. So companies that make components for the trailers, the trailers themselves, companies that make navigation equipment or diesel uh, engine equipment, those are companies that are going to really benefit from a huge ramp up in uh, distribution capacity and just the need to move goods around. Another, a more speculative play would be to either sell CDS or just buy outright municipal bonds from cities and towns that have been beat up real bad because of the unemployment costs, possibly also because of um, funding additional education expenses. In either a divided Congress or Democrat-run Congress, you're going to get some sort of bailout from those states. So I think if a state's been pretty badly beat up uh, or a city and had some downgrades, I think there could be a lot of upside there for spread tightening. Brian, many thanks for this fascinating insight into the service that is provided by Intertemporal Economics. With more time, it would be interesting to discuss in more detail your thoughts about what is happening beyond the USA in other developed markets. The Independent Research Forum is offering a one-month free trial to the Intertemporal Economic Service and can provide details of how to subscribe to their full service. More information is available from the Independent Research Forum on request. Thank you for listening to this IRF podcast with Brian Pellegrini of Intertemporal Economics. Thanks, David.